Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Warning. This podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. When you want to hear about the paranormal, you get the spooked girls. True crime that makes you hypothermal with the three spooked girls. Stabby snippets will give you dreams. Tara and Jessica will make you. We on that haunted ground. The three spooked girls. Hey there, spooksters, and welcome back to another episode here on Three Spooked Girls. It is I, one of your co-hosts, Jessica, and as always, I am joined by my favorite ghoul friend, Tara. Hey, spooksters. And today we're actually going to do another patron select. And so thank you, Emily, for giving us this topic. We are going to be discussing the Candyman, not the one we've already talked about here on the show, but a different one who was a serial killer. But if you want to have an episode like Emily's, you can too if you go to our Patreon page and All of our patrons who are $10 and above get an episode dedicated to them and you get to pick a topic that is true crime or spooky. Yeah. Thank you, Emily, for being a patron and selecting this. I'm really excited to share the knowledge I have now. Like I said, this is the story or the background of the Candyman, or as his real name is, Dean Arnold Coral. And I had a real issue with Dean because, like, you know, the name for me is slightly... (laughs) <laughs> Gilmore girls. Yes, Gilmore fans <laughs> will understand. <laughs> no, my like, uh, Dean. But like, also, this Dean is even more of a trash human. And people who like Dean on Gilmore girls are just like, what the fuck? <laughs> we'll go there in a different day. So, Dean Arnold Coral was born on December 24th, 1939, in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He was the first child of Mary Emma Robinson and Arnold Edwin Coral. Arnold was a very strict man and a father, and he and Mary would fight a lot. And in today's standards, probably not in those standards, but in today's standards, he would be considered an abusive father. However, Mary was very protective of her sons. Very mama birdie, like tried to shelter them from everything. So she took a lot of the brunt of his aggression. So their marriage was rocky to say the very least. In 1942, they welcomed their second son, Stanley Wayne Coral. And then four years later, they would divorce because, you know, it was not a good marriage. So they divorced in 1946, which to me is like almost unheard of in the Midwest. 
Well, right. And just even in that time period. Yeah. Very progressive. Mm -hmm. So after they divorced, Mary sold their house and they moved to Memphis, Tennessee. And they moved from like a beautiful home into like a trailer home. So it was kind of like the boys were like, what the hell is happening? But they did it because even though Arnold was considered abusive or not a good guy, I would say, Mary saw the point in wanting her family to stay together even if they weren't married. So Arnold was drafted into the U.S. Air Force. He was stationed near Memphis. Therefore, she moved to Memphis so the boys could be closer to their father. She was all about keeping the family together. This is a theme in Mary's life is stay close to your family type thing. Gotcha. Dean was a shy but serious child, and he rarely socialized with children his own age or even children who weren't his age, mainly played with Stanley type situation. And in fact, Dean got sick as a child. He was very sick. He caught rheumatic fever, which is an inflammatory disease that involves the heart, skin, joints, and brain of an individual. This happened to him when he was seven, but it wasn't diagnosed for like three to four more years in 1950 when he basically had a heart murmur. So they basically looked back and they could tell that he had had this, but he was undiagnosed. They just thought he was really sick and the doctors didn't know. But in 1950, it would be kind of a little uptick in the family. Arnold and Mary would remarry and get the family back together. And that lasted for only three years. So in 1953, they divorced. And at some point between 1950 and 1953, the family moved to Texas. Specifically, they moved to Pasadena, Texas. And they they lived there and everything was, was really nice. And then they divorced. And a couple years later, Mary would meet another man by the name of Jake West. And Jake and Mary would get married. And he was a traveling clock salesman. It's such a 1950s job. <laughs> like you get a knock at the door and you're like, hey, sir, would you like to buy this clock? <laughs> and you'd be like, oh, I don't, you know, you're right. I do. I don't have a clock in my house. I don't know what time it is. <laughs> Phones didn't have. I don't even know if popcorn existed back then, like where you dial and it would tell you the time of day. Probably not, because I feel like 411 and all that, all that stuff, those were real people operators, you know, like the switchboards and stuff. Oh, I bet you could call the operator and ask for the time. <laughs> could you imagine being the operator? Oh, my God. They'd be so annoyed. I'd be like, go get a damn watch. Goodbye. <laughs> my mom, my mom was like, a, she worked for the company that eventually turned into Sprint when she lived in the Midwest. And she was a, an operator and she moved up and she became management because she was organized and could type because those were skills back in the day. <laughs> now that just makes you like a blogger. Pretty much. They're like, you can't type? What is wrong with you? <laughs> right. <laughs> So Mary and Jake, they had a pretty good relationship. And one of the things is, is that they became friends with this guy who he was a nut salesman. So he sold like almonds and those type of things. And they became friends with him. And Mary would make candy out of the nuts he would give them. So he was like, you guys should go into business and make candied nuts. Because apparently that was a thing. And I started thinking about like things my mom would make. <laughs> and it was all like peanut brittle. <laughs> and I'm like, oh. And then my Aunt Dee's peanut clusters, which she is going to take that recipe to her grave because she hates me and won't give it to me. They're the most delicious things on the planet, and I need to know what they are. I've asked her before, and she's always like, I don't know the recipe. I just throw things together until it tastes right. Show me. Show me. <laughs> right? <laughs> anyway, 
By the way, she's a wonderful person and I love her dearly. So I'm not (laughs) hating her. I want everyone to know. She's one of my fondest peoples. Anyway, so Mary and Jake would start their own candy company and they called it the Pecan Prince. They would also have a daughter by the name of Joyce. And they literally, this was like a mom and pop type thing. And they started it in their garage one day. Just like, here, we're going to set this up. They got the machinery together. So, of course, what do you do when you have two kids who are like of age to help? Make them work. Anyone who's started a business knows your kids go to work for you. So Stanley and Dean started working for the candy company. And Dean actually didn't mind the work. He liked it. And they would run the machines and they would package the candy. And then Jake, because he was a clock salesman, could go out and sell. He had the skills to sell the candy. So he would go out and do that. And... Honestly, I think working night and day in his family's candy company was good because he was actually considered to be a standoffish kid or somewhat of a loner. He went to high school from 1954 to 1958 to, I believe it's pronounced Vidor. I hope that's right. Vidor. I don't know. High school where he was described to be well behaved and he made good enough grades or like satisfactory grades. Like, I don't think he was a straight A student, but I don't think he was flunking out. So I'm going to say he's about like a B, maybe some C's. And just because he was a little bit of a standoff loner didn't mean he didn't date. He actually dated occasionally throughout high school and he would date women, which you will be puzzled at later. He actually had another other than like working for his family. He only had one other interest, which he played the tuba or the my apologies, not the tuba, the trombone in the brass band at school. In 1958, his family would move from Pasadena and they would move to Houston Heights and they opened their own candy shop. Dean would work there for a couple years and then in 1960 his mom was like hey I need you to go take care of your grandma back in Fort Wayne and you're gonna stay with her because she was a widow and she needed someone to help take care of her. So Dean goes to do that and while he's out there he's dating around and he actually starts dating one local girl in particular and she falls head over heels for him. And is like in love and Dean Coral is her man. But Dean didn't really feel the same way about her. And I think she'd been kind of been like, hey, Dean, (laughs) you know, like back in those days, it was like, let's get married type situation. And Dean was like, no, stay. (laughs) So she actually proposed to him. Wow. And he rejected her. Mm -hmm. And then he ended up returning home in 1962 back to Texas to work for the family again. And he was employed there for a couple more years in the in-between time. So in 1963, Mary and Jake would actually end up getting a divorce and she would then develop the Coral Candy Company. At that point in time, she would appoint Dean to be VP and Stanley to be secretary treasurer of the company. So it paid to know the momager, essentially. (laughs) Right? God. (laughs) Right. And Dean worked most days, and this made Mary very happy because her kids were around. Even so happy that when one day an employee of the candy company, who was a teenage boy, came up to Mary and said, Hey, uh, your son Dean has been making sexual advances on me, and I don't like it. She just fired the teenager. She was like, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Get out of here, you stupid kid. Oh, man. In today's world would not fly. In 1964, Dean would be drafted into the Army, and he went to basic training in Fort Polk in Louisiana. Then he went to radio repairman training in Fort Benning. 
And then he would be assigned to Fort Hood, Texas. So he was in the army, obviously drafted. Well, you could at that time put in for discharge due to hardship, meaning that like your family business back at home needed you to be there. Like either you were a single parent or something along those lines that prevented you from serving. So he actually was discharged in 1965. He only served 10 months. But while he was in the army, he had, I I don't know why I wrote it as great reviews, like somebody fucking left him a Yelp. (laughs) (laughs) What I meant to say is like his record was unblemished. Like he didn't have like a tardy. He didn't have anything. He was a good soldier. Like he did what he was supposed to do. However, it's later discovered, like people who talked to Dean, realized that while he was in the army, he had his first homosexual encounter while he was enlisted. And it is noted that he may have had a relationship with a man, like an actual relationship during this time. And a lot of these states that he was in, I don't know if it was legal during that time, because back then, not so good times. Mm hmm. So, like I said, he gets he gets a discharge, which I believe is an honorable discharge due to hardship, and he returns home to resume work as the VP of the Coral Candy Company. And then in 1965, he would be instrumental in them moving the shop and relocating it to 22nd Street in Houston, directly across the street from Elms Elementary School. And Dean was known to give out free candy to all the kids, especially them teenage boys. And this would earn him the nicknames the Candyman or the Pied Piper. Basically, he was known because, I mean, you have to look back at the time. Like, this wasn't something people were like, oh, there's a man giving candy out to lure the men to do bad things. They were like, this new candy company moved in across the street. This is fucking genius marketing. He's handing out free samples to all these kids. Because then the kids like it. They tell their parents about it. Their parents come buy candy. Well, that's where the genius marketing ended. Because he was very flirty with them teenage boys. I'm sounding very too cavalier about this. I am sorry. There's This case is going to be heavy, so I'm making jokes up front while I can before I have to get into the into the heaviness. Yeah. So he would flirt with the teenage boys and very much wanted them around. And he would go as far as to like installing a pool table in the back of the factory so that all the local boys could come hang out there and play pool and like shoot the shit. And then it would be a legitimate excuse for why he was around. He owned the establishment. And I could totally see where like parents would be like, well, the guy owns the candy store and he's just trying to keep the kids off because again, they were in like Houston Heights area and that's a low income area. I don't know if I told you this, but it's in a low income area. So they were probably like, oh, these kids are not out doing what God only knows. They're hanging out at the candy factory with like the employees who work there and the owner. So some, an adult is watching them is what they're thinking. At least that's what I would be thinking in my naivete. And this is actually where Dean is going to meet a very important child. And his name is David Owen Brooks. And he was 12 years old when he met Dean and he was hanging out playing pool with the locals. And Dean would become somewhat of a father figure to David. They would go on trips together. And David was going through a hard time because his parents were splitting up. So when his parents were splitting up, he actually ended up going to live with his mom in like Beaumont, which was like 85 miles away. And he would come back and visit off his dad often. 
And then when he was there, he was so happy because he would literally run off and be like hang around Dean. And David's dad would be like, you can just stay with Dean. I don't care because I'm assuming he's naive or if not, he a bad man. So eventually David's parents would be like, cool, David will just come live with his dad. And then he ran around with Dean all the time. So in 1968, the candy company would close and the rest of Dean's family would move away to Colorado. And it said that his mother never laid eyes on him again, only talked to him on the phone. So they weren't traveling a lot. And I don't think Dean really wanted to travel a lot. After the candy company closed, he started working at the Houston Lighting and Power Company where he tested electrical relay systems. So he had a day job. And so that would kind of go on for a couple of years and David would hang out with him and they would just shoot the shit. And Dean kind of became this person that people knew as the guy that would like let kids drink and do drugs around him. So he had a plethora of people. Well, let's get down to brass tacks, people. Between 1970 and 1973, Dean would rape, torture, and kill at least 28 victims. Their ages ranged from ages 13 to 20. And most of them were mid-teens because he, I'm trying to think, he was, he was a pedophile, but he's that, I'm trying to think of the term and I'm blanking right now because I was like, I'm going to remember to look this up because my brain isn't working today. But it's the pedophile where you're attracted to like teenagers, like post-pubescent. Someone's going to be like screaming at me. It's this word. And I am trying telepathically to get it back from the future. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. Most victims were from Houston Heights, which I mentioned earlier was like a low-income area, and it was located in the northwest region of Houston. And his house was the party house. You could come smoke, you could come do drugs. And Dean also had another trick up his sleeve, which is that he recruited two teenage boys to help lure other teenage boys in. And their names were David Brooks, which made sense because he had a bond. Because immediately from the time that he met David, he began grooming him for later in life. And then Elmer Wayne Henley. And he went by Wayne. And these two boys would go out and they would look. At first, Dean would tell them, okay, I work for like, quote unquote, a white slave company where you go find these druggy, homeless, attractive boys. We'll get them drunk and high. And then you'll leave and I'll pay you money. So there was this whole elaborate story like, you'll steal stuff from me and I work for these other people and then they'll pay us. Well, the very first time Wayne did this, he brought a kid over, they handcuffed him. He just thought the kid was being sold into white slavery. And what he thought that meant was that he would go and be like some fucking gigolo on a beach in California with some pervy old lady. And he's like, well, that doesn't sound that bad. That's not what happens, guys. That's not what happens. So one of the tricks that they would do, they would say that the handcuffs were trick handcuffs. So like Wayne would get up and put have the kid put handcuffs on him, but not lock it with like a key. So then like Wayne could get out of it. And then he would turn around and be like, oh, someone would be like, oh, you want to do it? And then he would lock it and then he couldn't get out. And then he would just like leave. There is a movie on YouTube, which will be in the sources on the sources page. It's like a two hour movie and it's from the point of view of Wayne. So a lot of the stuff we don't know because Wayne wasn't around for everything, but it gives a very, it's a heavy two hours. Let me tell you. So Dean would get these kids drunk or high, or if they weren't drinking, he would drug them, like give them soda with something in it. Or if he just didn't care and he was whatever, he would just take them over by force. 
And once he would get them, he would take them into another room. And I mean, for a while, he was just doing his thing on the floor. But then he made a homemade torture board, which was like a piece of plywood with like handcuffs and like rope for the feet, which if you're listening and you're like, that sounds familiar, that sounds like Gacy. Gacy actually was inspired by Coral or by Dean. So he actually took notes from this guy and made his own board. Oh, okay. Serial killers inspiring serial killers. Dean, once he got them in a position where they couldn't escape, he would rape, torture, and kill, and sometimes it would take days. And then when he decided he was done, he would either strangle them or shoot them with a twenty-two. Now, I'm going to tell you, if you watch that movie, Wayne tells the police how Dean instructed him to kill, because, spoiler alert, Wayne helps. So, I will be honest, if you are triggered by shit that's violent, this is not a movie, though you don't actually see anything because this is not, like, a high-quality production, like, Hollywood movie. This is, like a C-level movie where they're like punching people and you're clearly punching no one. And then the guy's bruised already. And you're like, that doesn't happen. Bruises take time. So after they've been killed, they would, a lot of times Wayne and David would be the ones to dispose of the bodies with Dean. And they would take them to one of four locations, either a rented boat shed, a beach off of a peninsula, a wooded area near Lake Sam Rayburn, or a beach in Jefferson County. And like a lot of serial killers, Dean would keep trophies such as like keys, keychains, wallets, jewelry, etc. But he wouldn't keep clothing because he'd cut them off of his victims. So I'm not going to read all of them. I'm going to provide them all for you on the sources page. It's on the wiki page and the Murderpedia page. But there's a couple that I have to mention because they'll come in later. So I'm actually going to skip ahead to 1973. And on the night of August 7th, David Brooks wasn't around. So Wayne was around. And Dean had already picked out his like next victim. And it was going to be a 19-year-old by the name of Timothy Carley. And basically, Wayne and Timothy were hanging out at Dean's house. And Dean was like, that one. And then... All Wayne was supposed to do was, like, stay in contact with him all night, not let him go. And Wayne was like, okay. So they actually went out for a bit about midnight. And when they did, they came across, like, they pulled over and it was near Wayne's house. And when they pulled over, Wayne gets out of the car and he hears this, like, really loud commotion. And he realizes that, like, a friend of theirs by the name of Rhonda Louise Williams, who was 15, was basically her dad was drunk and was like beating her and so they basically ran over to rescue her and then took her in and they were like okay you can stay with us well they didn't have anywhere else to go so they go back to dean's house now dean does not like women he looks at them as like what's wrong with the world he hates women and he doesn't like when wayne or david bring girls around the house So when Dean is woken up by them partying at 3 a.m. and he comes out and he sees that there's a girl there, he gets really upset and he calls Wayne over and he's like, why is there a girl there? He's like, look, her dad was beating her. We just couldn't leave her. Like, what did you expect me to do type thing? And he was like, fine, whatever. And then they go about partying. All Dean said was like, keep it down. 
So they go about partying and then they pass out from like drinking and and smoking pot and whatnot or whatever they were doing. Drugs, they say pot, but I'm assuming maybe a little bit more hardcore. I think LSD may have been part of it. But basically, they all three of them wake up face down on their stomachs and Dean has handcuffed Wayne, Timothy and Rhonda. And they're like, holy shit. Wayne is like, oh, my God, this is happening to me. What he does to the other people, he does to me. Basically, Dean takes Wayne into the kitchen and is like, look, dude, I don't want to hurt you. You're like my guy, but those two have to go. There's no if or ands or buts about it. Wayne goes back to like sniffing his paint fumes that he was doing. And Dean has taken Timothy and Rhonda into the torture room and has them like tied up. Wayne is kind of like slightly participating, but he's like not. He's like only doing as much as like Dean is telling him to do just so that like Dean doesn't hurt him. And at this point in time, he starts to sexually assault Timothy. Dean does. Rhonda looks at Wayne and is like, why are you letting this happen to us? Like, why are, why are you letting this happen? And Wayne is like, holy shit. I like, I think this was like the moment, like he's realizing I'm letting this happen. Not I'm being forced to participate. I'm letting it happen. So he goes and gets the 22 and he basically pointing it at Dean. He like pulls Dean off of Timothy and is like, you need to like stop this. And Dean starts to taunt Wayne. Like, you're not going to do this. Fucking shoot me. Like, you're not. And Wayne fucking shot him several times, once in the forehead. And then he passed. He, like, died, essentially, then and there. At the scene, it said that he shot him in the forehead and then shot him three times in the lower back and shoulder. And then he, apparently, Dean slid down the hallway. And then Wayne was able to get the other two out. And then they called the cops. And... Wayne did the right thing. He immediately told the police, I killed a man. In fact, that is what he says in his 911 call. He goes, y'all better come, y'all better come here right now. I just killed a man. Very upfront. And he's like a baby. He's like maybe 1920 at this point in time. And so basically they come, they come get the body. Wayne is obviously arrested. The other two are taken to get, you know, looked at at the hospital and all that kind of stuff. Basically, It comes down to the fact that, like, Wayne was paid every time he brought someone to Dean. And he was paid, like, 200 bucks. So Wayne actually ends up saying to Timothy, if you weren't my friend, I could have gotten $200 for you. Which is super fucked up. So, obviously, Wayne is interviewed or interrogated about the killing. He tells everything. He says that this particular incident happens to be in self-defense. But... Just a a little bit longer in police custody, Wayne starts telling them everything they need to know. Because, like, honestly, there's been, like, all these kids missing from this particular area. People are like, how are all these kids just running away and nobody ever hears from them? Oh, I did forget one little detail. One of the things, one of the fucked up things that Wayne or that Dean would make his victims do is either he would make them write a letter to their families or call their families and tell them, like, I'm running away so that people wouldn't look for them. So he starts telling the police all of this stuff, right? And the police are like, um, you're full of shit, kid. There hasn't been this guy out kidnapping, raping, torturing, and killing these people for three years. There's no way. So there was this kid back in 1971 who was 13 by the name of David Hillegist. And he went missing and he was actually one of Wayne's friends. 
they were like, okay. And it was him. And then the next kid that was went missing or was killed, they were actually killed together. When Wayne told the police their names, they were like, oh shit, those kids are missing. So the police decide to like, they bring some people out. They start looking into it. But Wayne only knows where like a handful of these victims are because he's not always there. David's there half the time. So he gives up David's name and is like, David Brooks is part of this. And they go and arrest him and they bring him in and they question. And David is like, nothing. Doesn't say a fucking word. So they end up putting David and Wayne in a cell together and they start talking and they decide, yeah, we should probably tell what's going on. So they, you know, they start telling the story and they actually end up taking the police to all of these locations. And one of the things that was interesting is when Wayne took them to one of the locations, which was a shed, he's sitting there watching them exhume bodies and he only thinks there's four people in that shed. And they pull like 17 or they pull out like a huge number. And so he was like, holy shit. And I think he realized that... It wasn't what they thought it was. Oh, man. So they end up finding all of the victims, all 28, and they end up identifying pretty right away all but two. And then they discovered one later through like DNA and stuff and testimony. So on August 13th of 1973, a grand jury indicted both Wayne and David And because they were both involved. And just so that you know, Wayne did kill people. David, we don't know because he's never publicly talked about it, per se. And they go to court and they were tried separately for different roles in the different murders. And obviously, Wayne is going to be tried for the murder of Dean Coral because he admitted to it. So there's also that. Basically, they were giving incriminate. They had already given incriminating testimony against themselves to the police in a confession. They went into detail about like Wayne talked about how he choked a guy and all this stuff and everything. So they were both found guilty. I will say that Wayne's case did have a like a mistrial and had to be retried, but they were both found guilty. Wayne is serving six life sentences. He's in the Mark W. Michael unit in. Anderson County, Texas, and David was sentenced to serve a life sentence at the Terrell unit in Roshan, Texas. However, he did die on May 28th, 2020 of COVID. It's so weird because like this shit happened in the 70s. That is so weird. Yeah. And the dude died in 2020 from COVID. Right. That's crazy. Right? I'm just like, the one thing I do think is kind of like super fucked up about this case is that, you know, this guy, Dean, was such a predator and he was good at it. Like, I'm not trying to toot horns. I'm not trying to be like, he was an amazing serial killer, but like nobody had a clue. And if the incident on like the night slash morning of August 7th slash 8th hadn't happened, he would have probably gotten away with it for a hell of a lot longer. And his number would be racked up. Yeah. By getting these two teenagers involved in this, he made sure that he wasn't going to go down alone. And he used it against them. 
a lot of the times he would tell them, you know, if I'm going down, you're going down. And he attempted to kill both of them at one point in time, but they were so scared of him and so brainwashed. Like, that's the thing is they were so brainwashed. And little David, like, he was 12 when he met Dean. And the thing is, is that he's never publicly talked about his full relationship with Dean. So we don't know the extent of it. It's a case where it's like, I don't even know, like, where this guy went wrong. He didn't have any of the triad. Like he wasn't a bedwetter. He didn't set fires. He didn't torture animals. He was a shy standoff loner kid, but like for the most part was okay. He adjusted to military life well. It wasn't like he was out drinking and gallivanting and having like when you look at Bridgeway, like that's not something he had. It's just this man thought he could hurt little boys and torture them and get away with it. It's terrible. It is. I didn't even know this guy existed, and now I do. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes with these cases, like, to be honest, like, sometimes with these cases, you're like, okay, I've learned something, like, I didn't know. But then you're also like, oh, now there's more terribleness in my brain. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm definitely going to go watch, like, How I Met Your Mother and not cry myself to sleep tonight. (laughs) But it was definitely an interesting case to learn about because I didn't know, and it makes me think about how people get away with their shit. Yeah, it's scary. Mm-hmm. This guy had a system where he basically made sure if he had a loose end, he killed it. And if he thought someone was a loose end but didn't want to lose them, he just threatened to kill them. And not like threatened to kill them like, hey, I'm going to kill you, but like strap you to my torture board and threaten to kill you. So there is that. That concludes this patron select episode. We hope you enjoyed or learned something. And if you want an episode like Emily got, make sure you go and sign up with our Patreon. It's the $10 tier and up. You get to choose an episode and we've had some fun ones. And with that, we will see you back here on Monday for a regular episode here on Three Sweet Girls. Bye guys. Bye. Bye.